Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. We use console questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I am your host, Sarah Dong. I am a combined adult and pediatric infectious disease fellow. As a quick intro to the podcast, Febrile uses patient cases and console questions to learn about interesting ID topics. I will present pieces of the story of the patient's case, and we'll pause along the way to hear from our guests, who I'll introduce in just a moment. A disclaimer, all presented patients on this podcast are inspired by patient experiences, but cases are constructed or significantly altered and de-identified for learning purposes. I am thrilled to announce that our theme today is transplant ID, and we're doing things a little bit differently, and we're going to follow a patient actually in a few different places. I'm excited to introduce our guest, Dr. Nicole Theodoropoulos. She is an associate professor at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and the director of transplant infectious disease at UMass Memorial Medical Center. She completed her fellowship in infectious diseases with a focus in transplant ID at Northwestern University in 2012. She is currently the chair of the American Society of Transplantation Infectious Diseases Community of Practice and her research interests focus on donor-derived infections and prevention of infections in organ transplant recipients. Welcome, Nicole. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, our tagline is that we are a cultured podcast. So we've been starting by asking something non-medical and having the guests share a piece of culture, whether or not that's a book or a movie or a recipe that brings you joy. Okay. Well, I already kind of revealed that I have a thing for podcasts. (laughs) So I guess that would be one thing. I'm actually kind of a big true crime podcast enthusiast. And so, um, yeah, so I would say that's one thing that I've been really enjoying lately, especially on my commute to and from work. Oh my gosh. Yes, I totally agree. I love true crime, anything, whether it's podcasts or Netflix shows. I love to binge on those. Um, we can put together a list and we'll post it on the website with this episode's consult notes. All right, let's get started. Today's consult question starts with a pre-transplant evaluation. So we're actually in clinic. Um, So our patient is a 40-year-old female who has primary biliary cirrhosis. And so now she has decompensated cirrhosis with ascites, hepatic encephalopathy, and esophageal varices. She doesn't really have other major medical problems, um, and now she's referred to ID clinic for her pre-transplant evaluation. So I thought I'd pause here before she's even in the office and hear from you about your approach to the pre-transplant eval, what goals you have for the visit, and questions that you're already thinking about. Yeah, so um, this is something I do quite quite frequently in my my real life. So um, we actually evaluate all our um, pre um, liver and kidney patients before they're listed in um, infectious diseases. So usually I try to be pretty thorough with the patients, time limiting. Um, the The main points that I want to assess is. Um, especially for liver patients, like any history of multi-drug um, resistant bacterial infections, especially for those with ascites who might have had episodes of peritonitis in the past and looking through kind of their flora, what maybe they've been colonized or infected with in the past, it might help drive 
um, both empiric and maybe prophylactic antibiotics in the future. And then <clears throat> I think taking a really good um, social history is really important in the pre-transplant evaluation. So focusing on where the patients were born, where they've lived, where they've traveled. Sometimes you really have to push because people don't always like if you say, have you ever, you know, been out of the country, they'll be like, no, but then they forgot that they were like stationed in Vietnam for, you know, two years. So <laughs> things like that. Sometimes yeah. you have to be very specific. Um, and those just really looking for like any endemic exposures that maybe need to screen for, especially things like strongyloidiasis um, that could be easily treated prior to transplantation. Um, and then, you know, the other piece of um, piece of it is really just trying to uh, do some relatively quick counseling on safer living after transplant. So if there's anything that comes up that is maybe a little out of the norm in terms of what they do in their daily life, or if they have an occupation that they hope to get back to that is relatively high risk for infection, then trying to counsel them a little bit without overwhelming them um, on, you know, things that we might have to think about when they go back to work. So like I've had a lot of people that were plumbers and had a lot of mold exposure, you know, at work and um, hoping to go back to work after transplant at some point and just talking to them about the risk of being in small cramped spaces with mold and stuff like that. And then vaccines, making sure the vaccines are up to date, plug for vaccines. Awesome. And so I'll give you a little bit of more history about her. So I mentioned she doesn't really have other medical problems. She hasn't had prior surgeries, no known allergies. Um, and she's had no major prior infections. Her only hospitalizations have been related to hepatic encephalopathy. Um, she's never had spontaneous bacterial peritonitis um, or other sort of drug-resistant infections. Um, so for social history, she lives with her husband and two children. They are ages 7 and 13. They're in the northeastern U.S., and she's really always lived here. Um, she says she traveled to the Caribbean for a cruise about 15 years ago, but has never been anywhere internationally. Um, she has not traveled domestically outside of sort of the New England area. She has a pet cat named Simba and a pet parakeet named Darling. Uh, they have well water. And as far as dietary habits, no raw meat or kind of unusual things, no unpasteurized dairy, but she does love sushi. It's like her favorite food. Um, and she does not drink, no drug use. She previously worked as a dental hygienist, but she's now kind of been at home with being more sick. Um, so she's trying to stay out of work for the time being. Okay. So I'll pause there and see which pieces you would pull out to talk yeah. to them about. <laughs> so Although this piece is not relevant for her, I did forget to bring up the allergies. So obviously antibiotic allergies are a really important thing to touch on um, in the pre-transplant evaluation. And if anyone has any suggestion of a penicillin allergy on their chart um, and it's not an obvious non-allergy um, where they say like, oh, I just get nauseated or something obvious, um, I will send them for penicillin skin testing um, to try to get that cleared off their chart because that can be really problematic. Um you know, once someone gets sick after transplant, trying to choose antibiotics, but not an issue for her. So, um, you know, for her, obviously with the cat, 
um, toxoplasma um, is not um, required to screen pre-transplant recipients at this time, uh, at, at least for non-heart um, but we uh, we do since all donors are screened just to know their risk. Um, I don't necessarily really change anything about their post-operative prophylaxis based on that, but it is always good to know if someone's high risk for toxoplasma, um, either reactivation or primary infection after transplant. Um, I usually, you know, do try to talk to them about, you know, good personal protective equipment, I guess, when cleaning the litter box, um, either having somebody else do it or wearing a mask and gloves, um, making sure the litter block box is cleaned regularly so that the poop's not staying in there for too long. Um, you know, uh, birds are an issue. I, I know a lot of people tell patients to get rid of their birds. I, I usually don't do that because I have never actually found a patient that will get rid of their pets. Um, so it seems kind of like a moot point. But, you know, they do need to know that there is a risk for certain infections, especially fungal infections from birds in the house. Um, and to, I would certainly say for the bird to have somebody else cleaning the cage, um, making sure the state cage stays clean and um, if possible, not letting the bird fly around the house, um, stuff like that. Um, also with cats, it's always good to educate, um, for cat bites or scratches that they should always call, um, uh, if they are bit or scratched by a cat and because those can easily get infected and they often need antibiotics, even if they're not obviously infected right away. Um, uh, we usually tell people not to get new pets after transplant, at least within the first year of transplant. Well water is tricky. A lot of people out in this area have well water, um, we I usually do um, ask if there's like a filtration system for the house and if they can have the well inspected for parasites, bacteria. Some people will get it inspected for like heavy metals, but that's not really as pertinent to what we do. I think it gets a little bit tricky because, uh, you know, the, the state or the county will come out and inspect it. But then in terms of treatment, it may be costly. And so... Usually, I try to encourage them to stick to like a bottled water if possible. Um, and then, but obviously, well water is going to be in your shower as well. And so, a lot of people are exposed that way. Oh, I didn't think about the shower. Yeah, the shower. Yeah, they've done studies where they've done like uh, cultures of shower heads and found like so much like non tuberculous mycobacteria and all kinds of gross stuff in those. Yeah, so th I think the shower is probably like the biggest way people get exposed to well water pathogens um, yeah. but hopefully they're not gulping down large amounts of water in the shower to give them like you know cryptosporidium or something yeah. but you never know <laughs> and then in terms of the the kids you know obviously just like kind of general common sense things are they're, they're old-ish enough to hopefully not be licking everything that comes into their way and carrying home all kinds of <laughs> weird things but um and then, you know, in terms of, like, whether or not she'd want to go back to work as a dental hygienist, that is something that might need to come up in the future. So just maybe counseling her that it would be something that would be worth talking about if she was considering it in the future, but not getting maybe too into the details at the visit. Oh, sushi? Oh. Any ooh. issues with sushi? I just, like, blocked it out because I love sushi, too. <laughs> I'm, like, such a bad ID doctor. Um, so <laughs> I do, too. <laughs> you know, it's tough. Um 
So usually I tell people definitely avoid uncooked sushi if they can. Um, you know, even for patients with cirrhosis, they should be avoiding uncooked shellfish. Um, so that's another big thing. And then Northeast is kind of like raw oysters and stuff. Um, so I usually tell them definitely avoid that, you know, uncooked fish, um, for sushi. Some people like go as far as to tell them all sushi, like even cooked rolls, because it could be contaminated with the uncooked fish. But I mean, honestly, I think, um, the things we worry about in sushi are, pretty kind of like bigger you know bigger worms things that you know probably contamination is less of an issue so if it's her favorite thing in the world (laughs) i would probably try to wean her off at least and tell her to stick to the cooked sushi if she can (laughs) awesome uh okay and then for pre-transplant serologies i'll give you those since you're Hepatology college already sent them. Uh, she has a negative HIV test. She's CMV, EBV, IgG positive. She's measles, mumps, rubella, VZV immune. Her treponemal antibody test was negative. She's hep A, hep C antibody negative. She's hep B, surface antigen, surface antibody, and core antibody negative. She actually happens to have had a COVID PCR and antibody, which are negative. And um, she does have a indeterminate quantifiron. You kind of dig back through and see that she has a negative one for a while ago, maybe a couple years ago. Um, and so that's the other part of the question with the consult is whether or not she needs latent TB infection treatment. Right. So... I think in terms of her serologies in general, obviously, the CMV zero positivity is somewhat protective for her. So I probably wouldn't get too much into that. Sometimes I introduce the idea of CMV because most um, people that are not in healthcare don't really know what CMV is. And it is obviously the most common viral infection we see after transplant. But um, she wouldn't be, you know, super high risk because she is zero positive. So that's good. The indeterminate quantifuron um, always causes a lot of confusion. You know, as we know, you know, quantifuron, the way it works is it is um, an immune response to antigens that are specific for tuberculosis or pretty specific anyway. Um, and so when somebody doesn't have a great working immune system, you can get an indeterminate response because of basically they have a low response to the mitogen. And the mitogen should um, basically... Ha- everybody should be able to respond to the mitogen, whether they've been exposed to TB or not, right? So if you can't expose, um, if you can't respond or release interferon gamma to, to the mitogen, um, then your immune system is not functional enough to be able to read the test, basically, is how I try to explain it. So, and we've seen that, and actually did a study on this when I was a fellow, um, we've seen that actually is more, much more common, especially as people's MELD scores go up. So it's not uncommon. She's pretty low risk in terms of in like her epidemiologic exposures. Um, unless you told me she was in prison for five years or something, I wouldn't uh, consider her very high risk. Um, and unless there was something very concerning on her chest imaging, I don't think I would go any further, especially since she had that negative one a couple of years ago. It's pretty reassuring. Yeah, and her chest imaging is normal. Yeah. And then she obviously needs to be vaccinated against hepatitis A and hepatitis B, just 
by the sheer fact that she has cirrhosis, whether or not she gets listed for liver transplant. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So we covered a ton of different pieces of safe living after transplant. I realized the only thing I didn't give you was a sexual history, but that's something else that I think does come up in the pre-transplant. I mean, obviously, if you have time is safe sex practices. Um, but I think we covered most everything else. Yeah, I think definitely um, safe sex is something that should be stressed um, and encouraged. I think it sometimes, um, at least here, we really encourage um, the pre-transplant eval patients. They come in and they see a bunch of providers on the same day, and they're really encouraged to bring family with them. Obviously, things in the time of COVID have changed a little bit in terms of whether they can bring in um, guests. But when they do, it can be a little bit awkward to get into that, (laughs) (laughs) depending on who they bring with them. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I've definitely had, you know, a lot of people that are referred for me for like false positive syphilis testing, and then having to talk to them about that and it gets awkward with her husband in the room and stuff like that but it is it is not something that you should blow over just because it's awkward but (laughs) (laughs) okay and so she successfully gets listed for transplant and finally undergoes a deceased donor liver transplant her surgery is uncomplicated Um, and during that first post-op admission the id team is called you happen to be on consults continuity of care <laughs> um and the call is that her donor blood cultures have resulted with coag negative staff um and so i know donor derived infections is a big big topic but i thought we could maybe talk specifically about donors with bacteremia and even though this patient has coag negative staff i think it's helpful for listeners to also think about how you would approach it if it was a different organism as well um, so I'll see kind of what you do, how you manage when you get that information. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, uh, this is one of my kind of areas of passion is donor derived infections. And I, um, I did a three year stint on, um, the disease transmission advisory committee as well, where we review all the potential donor derived transmission events. And so, um, it's something I'm pretty passionate about. So I really feel like all transplant ID providers should have access to DonorNet and should be um, checking um, on their donors um, when they are, you know, or if they're initially consulted on the recipient. Um, we see everybody after transplant. So um, I check the donor chart when I'm consulted. Um and the reason I say that is sometimes those calls that you get can come quite late in the course. And sometimes that's a missed opportunity if you do actually need to treat someone, especially for something like a bacterial infection. Um, coagulus negative staph, obviously, I would treat um, similar to how I would treat in like a normal host. And when I'm thinking about it from a donor, um, you know, if for some reason, there was a record of like multiple positive coag negative staph blood cultures in the donor um, on different dates, then it would be a little bit more concerning. If it's just like one set or something from the time of procurement, it's most likely contaminant. And I wouldn't do anything about that. Um, And same goes for other, you know, such bacteria like Carini bacterium or bacillus. Um, But the the Bacteria that do raise flags are going to be any, um, so Staph aureus, 
um, is a big one. Um, and I don't care how many blood cultures are positive in the donor. If you tell me they have staph aureus, I'm going to treat the recipient. So um, that would be one. Any candida or basically any fungus um, in a donor is concerning. And any gram negative, but especially pseudomonas. Um, so, you know, candida and pseudomonas both have both been associated with anastomotic rupture in a recipient when left untreated from a donor. So obviously that's never something that you want to happen in a fresh transplant patient. Um, and, you know, the, it's pretty clear when you're talking about blood culture positivity. When you're talking about other, other cultures becoming positive, it gets a little bit more kind of funky in terms of what to do. But certainly I... I do recommend that recipients are treated for most bacter true bacteremias in a donor unless the donor was obviously already treated. So if a donor was like admitted with a known infection, treated appropriately and cleared the blood cultures by the time the organs were procured, you may be able to get away with not treating the recipient. But you really have to make that clinical decision based on what you know happened. So for staph aureus, I would say... You know, I think their recommendations are actually for consideration of four weeks of therapy in the recipient, and that's just based on expert opinion. I would say definitely at least two weeks, and it kind of, again, really, you have to go back and see what was going on with that donor. Um, there's been a lot of kind of like undiagnosed endocarditis um, in donors with staph aureus, um, and so it's really important to know because they may have had embolic phenomena to the organ that was taken um, and transplanted. And then you're basically kind of treating an abscess in the organ. And so you may need longer therapy. So those types of things are really important to know. I would definitely also treat candida and pseudomonas at least two weeks um, in the recipient. And then otherwise, my rule tends to be like, you know, if it's a urine culture and a kidney recipient, I would treat them probably, you know, seven days or less. If it's, you know, obviously if it's a respiratory culture and a lung recipient, um, that needs to be considered. But if it's otherwise like a mis mismatched culture, it, you probably don't need to worry about it as much. Yeah, I feel like that's what's sometimes hard. Like you were saying the missed endocarditis, like really knowing the how much metastatic infection the donor may have had so it's hard to figure it out yeah and sometimes it's pretty like just by looking at donor net you can see like you know donor was injecting drugs died from drug overdose came in found to have staph aureus you know declared brain dead the following day you know so it's like it's pretty easy to put it all together and then a lot of times the patients have had echocardiograms as well or some evaluation of their heart you know when they're looking for potential heart recipients as well so all right. So your patient, since it was cognitive staph, seemed like it was contaminant. Um, she had a brief course of therapy, did well, goes home. And then unfortunately, she comes back. But now we're five months post-transplant. So in the interim, she's done well. She has been tolerating her immunosuppression. Um, but now she has fatigue and fevers up to about 39 Celsius. Um, and then pretty significant diarrhea. And so it's non-bloody, but she has a lot of cramping abdominal pain with it. And then she generally, outside of feeling unwell, sort of has muscle aches, no shortness of breath or upper respiratory symptoms, no chest pain. She doesn't currently have a rash, but she said, I felt 
like maybe I had a rational when it started a couple days ago. No recent changes. So uh, restaurant or delivery food, no travel. Her youngest did have a pretty mild self-limited GI illness not too long ago. Um, But everyone else at home is doing well. And so on exam, she is febrile. At this point, she's 38.5 Celsius. She's tachycardic in the 110s, 120s. And her blood pressure is doing okay so far, 110s over 70s. And she, she looks uncomfortable and unwell. She has kind of diffuse abdominal tenderness, but no rebound or guarding. No cervical adenopathy. She does have some mild conjunctival injection and then her cardiopulmonary exam, normal. No obvious rashes right now. And labs on admission show that she is leukopenic. Her absolute lymphocyte count is about 300. Uh, Her sodium is 128. She has an AKI and a creatinine of 1.7. And then on her liver function test, her AST and ALT are both in the 600-700 range. Her serum bile is normal. Her ALKFOS is about 300. And so her blood and urine cultures have been sent off. And the, the transplant team just calls to get us reinvolved and help think about what's on the differential diagnosis right now. All right. And then how long was she having diarrhea before she comes in? Two or three days. Okay. And then is she on CMV antivirals for prophylaxis? Yes, she's on valgancyclovir prophylaxis. All right, great. So um, putting it all together, I mean, we're about five months from transplant. So um, this is certainly kind of like the heightened immune suppression time where we think about opportunistic infections. It's a little late for um, a donor-derived infection, but definitely not like completely excluded, depending on what you're talking about. Those can present, we've seen up to a year post-transplant. But uh, also, you know, if she, depending on how long, everybody has a little bit of a different way that they prophylax against CMV. And so depending on how long someone's on therapy, some people do three months of prophylaxis, some do six, some do longer, some just do preemptive prophylaxis where they monitor the PCR and treat once it's positive. So depending on that, I would say CMV would be on my differential. Um, I would definitely ensure that she's been taking her prophylaxis at an appropriate dose uh, for her renal function and that she's been taking it as prescribed because with the leukopenia and the diarrhea, always have to worry about CMV. That also brings up other viral infections. So obviously leukopenia can be pretty normal in a transplant recipient, but um, if it's lower than baseline, other viral infections also are concerning. You did mention the conjunctival injection, and that always makes me worry about adenovirus. Adenovirus is one of the kind of few viruses that really, you know, is kind of stands out when you talk about conjunctival injection um, and can also cause GI tract disease as well as pulmonary disease, basically any organ disease. Um, She clearly has a hepatitis as well, which adenovirus could do, CMV could do as well. Some other viruses... Um, you know, this could be something like norovirus. You said her daughter had a recent short-lived illness. Um, it can be a more chronic infection and immune suppressed patients. Doesn't usually, um, you know, come with the conjunctival injection and stuff like that, but can certainly cause a severe dehydration with AKI and hyponatremia like this patient is experiencing. 
little short-lived for um, parasitic infections to jump to the front of the radar, but she does have well water at home, so I wouldn't... I would not check for those. <laughs> um, and then C. diff. Anyone that's been in the hospital and it's gotten antibiotics, C. diff has to be on the radar as well. I think those would be like my main kind of things that I'd be worried about up front. Um, I am quite worried about her liver numbers, though. Yeah. Um, and, well, I guess I'll give you some results from the things that you've mentioned so far. So her C. diff was negative. Her norovirus and bacterial stool cultures were negative. She does have a negative CMV viral load. Um, she has her Valgan adjusted for her AKI now. Um, and blood cultures were negative. But on her respiratory viral panel, she does have adenovirus. And that's followed up by a blood PCR that's about 18,000. Um and so I would love to hear what you think about adenovirus and, and management because we're pretty limited in what we can do. Yeah. Gosh, I hate adenovirus. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> I'm not, yeah. I, I'm not a big fan of many viruses. Adenovirus. <laughs> adenovirus is probably like up there in my least favorite top five or something but um yeah you know it's funny because i feel like a lot of people blow adenovirus off and i think because it's just such a common especially in kids um such a common disease that can do so many different things but even in immunocompetent hosts there's been you know reports of very severe adenoviral pneumonias i think there was like an outbreak in the military like some few years back so it can be pretty nasty and can like i said can do like it can go anywhere, can do anything. Um, and yeah, as with most viruses, treatment options are limited. Um, we never really have great treatment options. So uh, it's tough. You know, she's in a tough period of time. She's pretty close to transplant. So decreasing our immunosuppression, while an op if it's an option, um, may be helpful. But there's obviously going to be a fine line there, a balance. And then, you know, you're talking about really sidofovir, which the data to support is are pretty limited. Even the dosing is questionable. <laughs> um, some people give it once a week. Some people give it three times a week. It, I don't think there's, you know, there's definitely never been any like head to head trials on adenovirus therapies. So, and then sidofovir can just be kind of a nasty drug. She's pretty sick, so I pro probably would recommend starting her on set off of your IV, but she is already an AKI as well, so um, there's nephrotoxicity obviously associated with set off of your use, and so you're going to have to be really careful. Um, and high, she obviously needs hydration, so hopefully that will help her. There, I think, um, rinsed off of your, which is like the oral formulation. Uh, that is not yet released, but did go through some clinical trials. I think there was some hope for it with adenovirus, but I know it is not currently available, even by, by like EIND, to my knowledge, because I did look into it for a recent patient. So, and that, I think the biggest issues with Brinstadofavir are some GI side effects, but much less nephrotoxicity. And then, you know, other than that, you're talking about like, Stuff like, you know, adenovirus-specific cytotoxic, cytotoxic T lymphocytes or something, which I've never gone down that route. 
at this point in time. But yeah, for her, I'd probably like hydrate, 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 try to decrease her immunosuppression if transplant is okay with that, and then start her on some IV sidofovir. And how do you decide how long to give them sidofovir? <laughs> yeah, until they get better and then I stop. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. or, or they can't tolerate it. It's usually one of the two. Um, yeah, it's tough. And, you know, the turnaround time, depending on where you are for adenovirus, PCRs can be long. So even if you're yeah. following those, um, it may be, you know, you may be waiting for a result for like a week or something. So it can be tough. But certainly you have a lot to go on with her in terms of symptomatology and her laboratory values that I think would help you figure out if she was improving or not. And the only other thing I was going to ask about was, have you used IVIG in these patients? Or do you check immunoglobulins and only use it if their levels are low? Yeah, I don't, I mean, the, the data for IVIGs for everything is pretty poor. I mean, I think we always try to, it's like one of these things, you know, any viral infection, they want to throw IVIG at it. Uh, there's probably not a lot of downside to IVIG other than the cost. Um, you know, there may be some immunologic issue post-transplant, but I give it for all kinds of other stuff. So, you know, if you're really worried about her, it may be worth doing. Yeah. I mean, you could check the immunoglobulins too, and then make yourself feel better if they're low, <laughs> give it. But I don't know. I mean, I don't, yeah, they're just little, like, the science is a little wonky there. Exactly. Yeah. Like sometimes I'll be like, well, you know, they're hypoglycemic anemic, so it'll be good anyway. So. Yeah. So the, the patient is doing poorly. We do try one dose of cytophavir, but it takes a while for her kidneys to sort of recover. And around that time, she kind of starts to turn the corner um, she still has a lot of diarrhea, but her fevers are better. And, and so she gets in a place where she can finally um, be discharged. And so there's our patient today had a ton of continuity <laughs> <laughs> um, with you. And I, I think it's awesome. We talked on a several different transplant-related topics. So the pre-transplant eval and safe living. We talked a little bit about donor bacteremia and then um, adenovirus and fever and diarrhea. Um, and what I've been doing at the end is just asking if there's any other pearls or messages you want listeners to know, even if it's just that you love transplant ID and it's awesome. It <laughs> I'm sure there are fellows and trainees who are interested in transplant and would love to hear any like advice. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, definite plug for transplant ID. I mean, I obviously ID is um, a great field, um, super interesting. I think obviously everyone is seeing the importance of ID in this time period with the pandemic right now. And then, you know, transplant on top of it, I think it's just, it's such a great community, like the transplant ID community, because it is pretty small still. It's still a relatively new field. And so, um, you, you know, you get to work with the people that have been doing it since it started, basically. And so, you know, it's in everyone is such a tight knit group, obviously, being part of American Society of Transplantation, I get to like network with so many people that I like admire and look up to. And it's just really such a great community. I, I couldn't be luckier to have chosen to do what I do. And, you know, I think it's just working with the entire transplant team, in the patients is so rewarding. I mean, a lot, if you think about 
you know, what these patients are going through, most of them not thinking that they're ever going to live past the next few months sometimes to, or at least not live a normal life. And then they get like kind of a second chance on life and, and then trying to be there, you know, from the beginning to the end. I think that's also kind of highlighted with this case and like that you get to see them beforehand and then all through the whole process. And I think that's really cool because there's not always that ability to be a continuous figure in a patient's life when you're a consultant. I mean, obviously, an ID with our HIV patients, that's there, but not always in like the general ID world um, when you're kind of an inpatient consultant and just doing hospital follow-ups and clinic. Um, and then you kind of cure the patient of the disease and it's great, but you never see them again. Um, so it's a little bit different with transplant. And I, I really do love that aspect of it. And I think the other thing I would say is just, I think one thing that you, when you were reporting the physical that really jumped out at me is that you said she just didn't look well. And <laughs> that's usually what I ask my fellows and they're presenting me is like, well, what, did she, what did she look like though? Like, <laughs> because <Yeah. laughs> that's usually how, I mean, honestly, that's how I make like a huge amount of my decisions is just kind of like enter the room and like, what is the gestalt of like what's going on with this patient, especially for like the neutropenic patients on the bone marrow patients. <laughs> like you go in the room and you're like, yeah, oof, no, they're, <laughs> you know, because yeah. some of yeah. them, I mean, they can be having fevers to like 103 every day and they're fine. They look fine, you know? And obviously they have the potential for badness, but then some of them you go in the room, you're like, no, no, that's not fine. So it's kind of, I, I, a lot of it is just kind of like seeing and learning. And I think that's really important just to kind of get that, intuition under your belt. Thanks so much for tuning into another episode of Febrile. I hope you liked this introduction into Transplant ID, and I look forward to having more transplant and immunocompromised host cases and guests in the future. Follow and thank our guest, Nicole, on Twitter, and take a look at our website, febrilepodcast.com, for post-episode consult notes, some true crime entertainment recommendations for our little piece of culture this episode, infographics, and links to references. I hope that you love listening to Febrile as much as I love making it. Please connect and follow on Twitter or Instagram at febrilepodcast. Let me know what you think, who and what I should feature in future shows, or just send me your best ID jokes. I'm always on the lookout for new friends who want to join and help create episodes. So just reach out if you're interested. So thanks again for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.